Well, as we were singing that song, I thought, what an appropriate song to be singing on Valentine's Day, because I'm sure if you haven't already, uh, you will be singing someone's praises today, um, telling them how much you adore them and how much you love them and appreciate them, and so isn't it appropriate that we would first and foremost express our love and our adoration to our greatest love, right? Our one true love, our first love, uh, Jesus Christ. Well, it is Valentine's Day, and that doesn't always fall on a Sunday, but whenever it does, I always see it as a golden opportunity to talk about marriage because uh, it's something that um, the majority of us will have the privilege um, of experiencing in life and it's a, a precious gift from God. It's a, it's a, a gift of grace. Um, some even would call it the grace of life. And, um, and yet sometimes it doesn't always feel so wonderful of a gift. Uh, anyone that's been married for uh, any length of time know that sometimes marriage can be hard. It can be challenging. It can be difficult and um, it may even get to the point where you want to call it quits. And so, as a pastor, I'm always wanting to make much of marriage. And in fact, I was reading something this week that I was convicted by that uh, they were encouraging churches to make much of marriage. One of the ways you can do that practically is every month have a Sunday where you have everybody that celebrated their anniversary stand up and affirm them and applaud them. Uh, And I thought, that's so cool. What a great idea. So, has anybody had an anniversary this month? Yes, Chris Davis? Well, you guys, well, there we go. We can clap for that. Good for you. Chris was excited about that. So, again, just something simple, but I thought, that's really cool. Way just to highlight marriage, to make much of marriage because uh, our world doesn't. And uh, we are living in a generation, an age where uh, marriage is being trampled down and uh, it's no longer uh, the thing um, that uh, God intended it to be uh, in our world's mind. And so, hey, the youngins are away at camp, right? So let's talk about us. Let's talk about mom and dad. Let's talk about husbands and wives this morning, and so I want to have you turn with me to what may at first seem to be an odd text to talk about marriage from, but Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36, Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36, this is that familiar text about loving your enemies, he said, hey, I thought we were talking about Loving your wife or loving your husband, right? What is this loving your enemies? Well, let's look at this text this morning and hopefully we'll see uh, some encouragement, uh, we'll gain some encouragement for our marriages. So Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also, and whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. 
treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend. And here's the line that you need to underline, highlight, bracket, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown to every one of us here. You have not given us what we deserve. You have not treated us like we have treated you. Lord, we're a thankless bunch of folks and were it not for your mercy and your grace, all of us would deservingly spend eternity away from your presence in hell. But you've reached out to us in your grace and uh, through Christ. And it's these words of Christ that we want to understand. We want to uh, apply this morning to our marriages. And so would you help us to do that? Uh, may you... Uh, strengthen those marriages, Father, that are strong, and Lord, I pray that you would offer help and hope to those marriages today who might be weak, and Lord, there may be someone here, a couple here, who's really struggling, and that they would realize that no temptation, no trial has overtaken them, but that which is common to man, and you're faithful You'll not allow them to be tied, tried or tempted beyond what they're able, but with every trial, with every temptation, you will provide a way for them to escape it. So Lord, grant us grace today. May this message give us hope, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you, I'm sure, have heard of a man named B.B. Warfield. He was a world-renowned theologian who taught at Princeton Seminary for almost 34 years until his death in 1921. Uh, many uh, of you maybe have heard of his books, the most famous one being The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible. That was kind of his classic work. Well, what most people don't know about B.B. Warfield is that in 1876, at the age of 25, he married a young woman named Annie Pierce Kincaid. And while honeymoon, honeymooning in Germany, tragedy struck. Because during a, a fierce storm, Annie was struck by lightning and permanently paralyzed. Now, I can't imagine, I, I think it's impossible for us to fathom what that must have been like for this young, healthy, vibrant couple, giddy with excitement, bubbling with romance with their whole lives ahead of them to have all their dreams and expectations shattered in a split second by a lightning bolt. Yet in the face of that heartbreaking situation, Warfield rose to the occasion and provided a heroic example of true, unconditional, sacrificial love. And he cared for Annie for 39 years before she died in 1915. In fact, 
because of her extraordinary needs, he seldom left his home for more than two hours at a time during their married life. Can't imagine that. And that kind of love that Warfield demonstrated towards his wife is uncommon. It's unfamiliar to a lot of us today. Because we live in a day where marriage is all about self-fulfillment, isn't it? So as soon as your marriage relationship no longer fulfills your needs or fails to meet your expectations, whatever those may be, love, companionship, communication, understanding, respect, sex, happiness, then it's time to end the relationship. It's time to move on in hopes of finding someone else who might be able to satisfy our wants and our desires. Well, can we just be honest this morning? Let's be realistic that none of our marriages fulfill all of our needs or meet all of our expectations. That's a realistic view of marriage. Sorry to lay that one on you if you're getting excited about marriage. Maybe you're engaged to be married. But guess what? It's not going to meet all your needs. It's not going to fulfill all your expectations. And it never will. Why? Because marriage was never supposed to. That's why we need Jesus. That's what our relationship with God is for. Kelly and I came across uh, this little devotional several years ago. In fact, I think Kelly was the one who found it and bought it for us. It's called Devotions for a Sacred Marriage uh, by Gary Thomas. And it's just um, weekly devotions, just one a week. And so we try to uh, sit down uh, sometime on Monday and uh, before the day gets going and just sit at the kitchen table and read that installment for the week. And we've just really uh, fell in love with this book because uh, it's just so down-to-earth, realistic uh, in what it has to say. In fact, if you have gotten married anytime soon, uh, this is what you got from us as your wedding present um, because we just that's our new wedding present we give to all the new couples is this book because it's so been so helpful for us and we want others to be blessed by it the way we've been. And so there's a chapter here, and I just want to read a couple lines from it. Uh, and it's called Divine Detachment. Probably a better way to say it would be disillusionment. And this is what the author said. He said, I'm convinced one of God's purposes for marriage is to create a divine disillusionment. You're not typically thinking about that on, on, uh, on your wedding day, that this is going to be a disillusioning experience that I'm entering into. But that's what he's saying, that God's purposes, God's purpose for marriage is to create a divine disillusionment. He needs to bring us to the end of our belief that anyone other than God can ever fully satisfy us. He says, I've talked to countless couples whose problems remain throughout the years, often discussed yet never resolved. In such cases, a sense of betrayal almost always comes to the surface. He won't do what I need him to do or she just won't do what I want her to do. When the desires are legitimate, better communication, more support, more sexual availability, the pain of denial is keenly felt, but demands, even legitimate ones, still represent the Achilles heel of every person's contentment. Spiritually, demands place us at the mercy of sinful persons who are limited in their ability to love. If we look to anyone other than God to meet our deepest needs, we are guaranteeing frustration. 
He says, any desire can be obstructed and thereby bring frustration. We do not have an absolute right to anything. Rather, we have an obligation to trust that God in his providence will ultimately provide what we need or will give us the strength to do without. He says, in fact, I'll go out on a limb and claim it's somewhat healthy to feel a little disillusioned in your marriage. Because it's at that point you'll realize you need to look to God for your highest joy. You may feel tempted to respond to disillusionment by searching for another spouse who promises to fulfill you more, but eventually you would find that while she had strengths your spouse lacked, she was missing some of your spouse's better qualities. Life with that new person would inevitably bring its own disillusionment until one day you'd wake up to the fact that your soul's happiness really does depend on a holy, perfect God, not a sinful human being. Isn't that good? Such a great reminder. And so as I've counseled people over the years, and even through my own experience of being married for 30 plus years, it's sad that to, to meet couples who, who have experienced something that I think is far more tragic and difficult to deal with than what the Warfields experience. Now, that sounds terrible. But there's something far more common and much more familiar, and and what I'm referring to is when a marriage itself becomes paralyzed. Paralyzed by anger, bitterness, meanness, hard-heartedness, a lack of frustration, or frust- uh, excuse me, a lack of forgiveness, excuse me, or frustration. There are plenty of marriages where the, the flames of romance have been snuffed out and the lines of communication have been shut down and the hopes and dreams of a blissful, lifelong relationship have been shattered. And two people got married fully expecting to live happily ever after, but when they, then they wake up one morning horrified to find out that they're actually sleeping with the enemy. And these two people that started out as best friends somehow have ended up as worst enemies. And it's sad to, to see. And the counsel I give to a married couple who have literally become each other's worst enemies may seem unorthodox, and even strange at first, but I'm convinced that it's the key to resurrecting and rebuilding their relationship. And so what I tell them, hey, you need to stop treating each other like husband and wife and start treating each other like your worst enemy. They kind of look at me like, what? I thought we came here for you to help us. Okay, now you're seems like you're pouring gas on the fire and you're gonna make this thing worse. But then I turn to this passage here in Luke chapter six, and I explain to them how Jesus commanded his followers to treat their enemies. And typically they all of a sudden have hope again. Because they came in for counseling having lost all hope and they were sitting there wondering how in the world could I ever love my spouse who has in a very real sense become their arch enemy. But as soon as they put their spouse in the category of an enemy, there's a sense of relief because now they know what to do. It's just plain and simple. 
And so what they realize is that they're still obligated to love their spouse even though, they don't, even though they don't feel like it and even more so now that they qualify as an enemy. And the only difference between loving your spouse and loving your enemy is it's much easier to love your enemy. Are you tracking with me? Why? Because you don't expect your enemy to love you back. See, our sinful tendency is to put limits on our love. We love others because they love us, right? We put conditions on our love. I'll love you as long as you love me. And frankly, it takes very little effort on our part to love someone who reciprocates our love. But Jesus said we're to love even those who don't love us back. And he promised that God would reward us greatly when we love without expecting anything in return. In my opinion, this is the most radical teaching about love in the entire Bible. And it's the Sermon on the Plain. Some say it's the a similar sermon that Jesus preached, like the Sermon on the Mount. Some say it's the same sermon, just Luke's record of it. But Jesus had just chosen his 12 disciples and he was teaching them how they should live. And so he, he was describing what a disciple of Christ should act like and think like and talk like and look like, but most importantly, how they were to love. And so in this section of his of his sermon, Jesus explained and illustrated the way his followers should love others, which is radically different from the way everyone else in the world normally loves others. And simply stated, genuine Christians love unconditionally and they love sacrificially. And so let's look at this passage and see what we can glean for our marriages or perhaps other marriages that you are involved with that you can be used by God to give hope and help. But I want us to see this passage broken up here in, in several sections. First of all, the contradicting command. The contradicting command. Look at verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Now when we hear this, it's not very surprising because we've heard this before. We've read this before. But for the disciples who were hearing this for the first time, it must have taken them by surprise because it contradicted the common teaching of that day. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what they had been taught. And in an attempt to explain and apply the law, the scribes and the Pharisees had added their own set of laws to God's laws and, and, and treated them with equal authority. And so the rabbis taught that Jews should love their neighbors and hate their enemies. And they were just picking up on the Old Testament, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 23, for example, where God said, hey, don't ever receive an Ammonite or a Moabite into your home. Those people didn't, didn't treat you right. When you came out of, uh, when you came out of uh, Egypt, they, they, they attacked you. They, they weren't hospitable to you, so you, you treat them the same way. They're your enemies. And so the Jews felt like not only they had the right to hate their enemies, but the duty to hate Gentiles and unrighteous Jews. 
In fact, if a, if, if, a, if a Jew saw a Gentile drowning, they wouldn't try to save him. That was the mindset of the day. And to not hate them would be to compromise. And so the Pharisees had placed limits or conditions on their love, and they taught the Jewish people to do the same. And so Jesus came along and taught them to do the exact opposite, which was to love without limits. And he commanded them to have unconditional love for others. And this word here for love is the word agape. We know that there's a number of words, right, in the New Testament that are used for love in the Greek language. Eros is the romantic sexual love. Storge is the natural uh, familial love. Phileo is the brotherly societal love. And then there's agape, which is the godlike, unconditional, sacrificial love. And it's, it's a love that's not based on the merit or the worthiness of the one loved, but simply on the fact that the one who loves chooses to love them. The fact that God loves you is because, not because you're such a wonderful person, there's something about you that's drawn him to you. No, he chose to love you, apart from any merit or worthiness in your life. This kind of love doesn't care who the person is or what they do or how deserving or undeserving they may be. The one who loves always goes out of their way to seek their highest good. And again, we know this. Love is more than a feeling. It's a choice. It's not just an emotion. It's an action. And this is the only kind of love, this agape love, that makes it possible to love your enemies, to love those who don't naturally, or excuse me, that that we don't naturally love, and those that definitely don't love us. And that's another reason why I think you could call this a contradicting command because it goes against our human nature. This is not normal, natural. But when Christ comes into our life, he transforms us and he makes us a new creature and enables us to love like this. But notice how Jesus went on here He followed up this main command to love our enemies with a series of of rapid-fire commands that give practical ways that we can show love to our enemies. Okay, what does it mean to love my enemy? Well, first of all, do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. It's not enough to not do bad stuff to our enemies. It's like, well, I, I haven't done anything bad to them. Well, fine. But Jesus said you have to go beyond that. You need to do good for them. Do good things for them. No matter how mean and nasty they are to you, you shouldn't be mean and nasty back. You should repay their evil with good. So we should commit to doing nice things to our enemy. And again, I don't know if your spouse is the enemy, but I'm sure you have somebody in your life that this might apply to that this week, I would challenge you to commit to doing one nice thing for them. That'd be an application of this passage. Secondly, he says to bless those who curse you. Again, it's not enough just to not say bad things to your enemies or about your enemies. We must talk nicely to them. And you ready for this? and about them. We need to speak well of them 
to others. That's what it means to bless those who curse you. Typically, it's, we may not say anything bad to their face, but when we're with somebody else, we throw them under the bus, right? And he's saying, no, you need to bless them. You need to speak well of them. So another practical way to apply this is to commit to saying one nice thing to your enemy or about your enemy to someone else this week. Maybe you're really having a hard time with your spouse. Well, you need to think of a way that you can say something nice to them. Or perhaps the the true test would be to say something nice about them to someone else. To give them some kind of compliment. Even though you're not feeling that. 1 Peter 2, verse 8. To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. In other words, you can speak evil of me all day long. I'm just going to keep speaking well of you. There's a third thing we can do. He says, pray for those who mistreat you. Pray for those who mistreat you. We must intercede for those who treat us wrongly. In other words, our enemies need to be on our prayer list. It's like, I ain't putting them on my prayer list. Well, David, the psalmist, had enemies on his prayer list. Psalm 35 Verse 12, they repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they're sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting. My prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. He was grieving over his enemy's plight. How about Jesus praying for those who mistreat you? Father, forgive them for they... Don't know what they're doing. It's a prayer he prayed on the cross. Stephen, as he was being stoned to death, Acts 7, 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And having said this, he fell asleep. So he was praying for his enemies while he was dying, while they were killing him. Verse 29, he says, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer them the other also. Now, I don't think this is to be taken literally here. You get hit, and you're like, well, hit me again. Go ahead. Or um, somebody comes and, uh, you know, robs you and steals your wallet, and they're running off, and like, hey, you forgot my car keys. And by the way, here you go, and then my car's parked over there. If you want that, you can have it too. I mean, if that were the case, thieves would only work on Sundays and they would just have to wait till church gets out and know that a bunch of Christian schmucks are coming out and they're going to just give them all their stuff. Hey, I want your stuff. Yeah, here you go. You can have it. That's not what Jesus was teaching. He was teaching an attitude here. I mean, what is our natural reaction when someone hits you? To hit them back. What's our natural reaction when someone takes something that belongs to us? Take it back. Or take something from them. It's to retaliate. It's to get even. What we learned in Romans, right? Romans chapter 12, that's not how we're supposed to respond. Romans chapter 12, 
Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what Jesus was advocating. He wasn't advocating some weak, cowering, sentimental, pacifistic mentality here. In fact, you remember when Jesus got slapped by one of the officials when he was speaking to the high priest, Jesus rebuked him for wrongly disciplining him. So what Jesus was teaching his disciples here was to be willing to deny themselves completely even when they were being abused or being taken advantage of. Now, that's not to say there isn't wisdom in running away. <laughs> if, if, if somebody's coming after you, it's not, you don't just have to stand there and take it. I mean, you could take off, hightail it, get out of there. And I think there, there are times when it's appropriate that separating yourself from a dangerous situation is, is not only appropriate, it's, it's biblical wisdom. And so there are times when marriages get to a point where it's just not a safe environment. Literally, it's an unsafe environment. And the best counsel to give them is, hey, you guys need to kind of get away from each other right now or you might end up physically hurting one another. And, and again, it's a temporary separation so they can work on themselves, right, and their relationship with the Lord with the goal of coming back again and... Uh, living together in a harmonious way. Look at verse 30. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. In other words, be ready to give everything you have if someone asks for it. And even if they take it away without asking, don't insist for them to give it back to you. I mean, this is uh, somebody, another friend of mine shared this with me years ago when our kids were little. And man, this 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 will preach, man. When when your kids are fighting in the bedroom over toys, right? You, what, the fight always breaks out. What? And you come in. What happened? Well, T took my thing. She took my right. They're fighting over something that somebody else took away from them. What a great verse! Give to everyone who asks of you. In other words, you should have gave it to them anyway when they asked. And whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. Isn't that what, that's the dynamic that's going on in a lot of children's playrooms. So what a great verse to teach your kids. And then verse 31, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. This is uh, really a summary of all that he has already said. This is the foundational principle of life, right? That you love others like you want to be loved. And Jesus didn't just command us to love this way. He also modeled, us, modeled for us how to do it. He was hated by the religious leaders. He was cursed by the crowds. He was mistreated by the soldiers. He was brutally beaten. His clothes were stripped off and gambled for. And he was ultimately crucified by his enemies. And yet the whole time he was seeking their highest good, seeking their salvation by dying for their sin on the cross. 
I love 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. Some of you may be married to an unreasonable person. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. You may be in a marriage where you are suffering unjustly. It's just not fair. The way you're being treated unreasonably, unjustly. He says, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept him trusting himself to him who judges righteously. Hebrews 12, verses 3 and 4 talk about Christ's death. And the context is endurance, running with endurance the Christian faith, the Christian life. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There's a lot of times couples grow weary and lose heart. And, and sometimes it's because of the hostility. The marriage is just broken down to the, and it's, and it's just be, the home has become hostile. It's become a hostile environment. But he says, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners. You think you got it bad. It's not even close to what Jesus endured. Verse four, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, have you? And it may not be very comforting and compassionate, but sometimes I've said, hey, they haven't taken you out to the front yard and crucified yet, have they? Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. Hang in there. God knew that there would be people in situations like you're in that would need to the grace of endurance. But Jesus has given us a great example what it looks like to love your enemies to death. So that's the contradicting command. Well, let's look at the convicting comparison. The convicting comparison in verse 32. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. So for the disciples who may have been listening to Jesus and going, there's no way, I can't love my enemy like that. You might be sitting here saying, you don't know the situation. I mean, you've not been in my house. You have not heard the conversation. You've not seen what's going on, right? There's no way I can love my enemy, my spouse like this. Well, Jesus' question is very simple and to the point. He says, then what, makes you, then what makes you any different from anyone else in the world? What makes you any different from the, from the pagan couple living next door? And so Jesus asked these three convicting questions 
here, and his point is, if you love those who love you, and you do good to those who do good to you, and you lend to those who you know will pay you back, big whoop-de-doo, big deal. Even the world does that. And so comparing yourself with the rest of the sinners in the world doesn't prove a thing. Don't pat yourself on the back because you do these things. You're not doing anything more than unsaved people do. Your love needs to exceed and surpass the world's love. It has to be above and beyond the world's love. Your love has to be different, in other words. And the main difference between the world's love and Christ's love is the world's love is natural, whereas our love is supernatural. Their love is conditional. Our love is unconditional. The world's mentality is, you know, I'll help you on one condition. Whereas the Christian's mentality is, I'll help you, period. The world's mentality is, uh, thanks, I owe you one. And the Christian's mentality is, you don't owe me anything. The world's mentality is, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Christ's mentality is, You can stab me in the back and I'll scratch your back. See, the world's love doesn't even begin to compare with Christ's love and the love of Christians. And when we love like this, it sets us apart from the rest of the world. It makes us stick out in our neighborhood. It makes us stick out at work. It makes us stick out at school Because the way we love is so radically different from the way everyone else is loving. It's so much greater. It's so much deeper than the world's love. John 13, 35, they will know we are Christians, what, how? By our love. And so what sets us apart from other sinners in the world is the way we love not just our fellow believers, but it's also how we love our enemies. And again, Jesus' point here is if our love can be compared to the world's love, then that might mean that we're no different from them. In fact, we're not truly saved. We're not genuine believers. Because if a person is truly saved, the way they love will far surpass the way everyone else in the world loves. So this is the convicting comparison. Compare your love with the love of your unsaved coworker or classmate or neighbor. There's a third part here of this text. We could call it the compelling consequences. In other words, these are the results of loving our enemies. These are the things that should compel us to love this way. Verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, and here it is, our phrase, right? You've already got it bracketed, underlined, highlighted, circled, starred, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. Literally there, that you should love and 
do good and lend, never despairing, never giving up hope that loving like this accomplishes something. In other words, it's never for nothing. Even when you think it's not working, nothing is changing, it's not accomplishing anything. If you remember from the movie Fireproof, when that husband was doing the love dare, right? That book, and he was doing those devotions every day and trying to follow the steps that they were giving him to win his wife back. And, and so he was doing all these wonderful things and made her dinner and there was a dozen roses on the table and you know, trying to make a special evening and she just spurned it. And it frustrated him and he went out and called his dad and said, Dad, it's not what? Working. It's not working. And his dad's like, I'm sorry, son. I know that's hard, but don't give up. Don't quit. And I think there's hope here that Jesus wanted us to remember some things that are accomplished when we love this way, even when we don't see any results. What should compel us to keep loving this way? Well, number one is the promise of a reward. The promise of a reward, he says, and your reward will be great. You say, what's the reward? Look back at verse 22. Earlier in this, in, this, in this sermon, he said, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn you. Your name is evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. In other words, you're in good company. And God's going to reward you someday for enduring all that you've endured. And so there's the, the promise of reward, but even more importantly, and what is even, I think, a greater reward is proof of your salvation. Proof of your salvation. Notice he says, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. In other words, it will demonstrate that you are truly a child of God. That you're a Christian. Now, loving our enemies doesn't make us a Christian. It simply proves that we are a Christian. When we love without limits, it provides us with assurance that we're truly saved because it's not natural. It's not normal. It's supernatural. You can't love this way apart from Christ. If you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you can't do this. It's impossible. And so when we are able to do this, it gives us the confidence that we have the Spirit of God in us, which means we're truly a child of God. Why? Why will you be sons of the Most High? For, here's the reason, the purpose clause, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Ever since God created man, he's been putting up with thankless and wicked men who take what he graciously, graciously gives without ever saying thanks. 
Matthew 5, 45, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. In other words, when it rains, it doesn't just rain on your yard to water your grass. It also rains on your pagan neighbor's yard. So his grass grows too. It's the grace of God. Acts 14, 16, and in generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good things. Romans 1, 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal powers, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or what? Give thanks. And yet even though they deserve God's wrath, he continues to be merciful to them. Verse 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. What is mercy? Not getting what you deserve. There are some of you whose spouses do deserve for you to be mistreating them being mean to them, being harsh to them. Why? Because that's the way they are to you. But he says, hey, be merciful. Don't give them what they deserve. And instead of giving them what they deserve, give them what they don't deserve, which is what God does to us. He gives us what? Grace, kindness, forgiveness, And I think this verse here really sums it all up. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Jesus' point is be like God the Father. Love like God loves. And that's why we can have the assurance that we are sons of the Most High or daughters of the Most High. And if we truly are his kids... We will act like him. We will look like him. How many times have you met somebody, right, and, and they introduce you, hey, this is my son or daughter, or this is my mom or dad, and you had already figured it out. You already knew that this was their kid, or you already knew this was their parent. Why? Because they just looked like them. They looked just like them. They bared the resemblance They were a spitting image, if you will, of their dad. That's the idea here, that we need to be a spitting image of our father God. But if we aren't, if we don't look like God and how we love our enemies, that should cause us to wonder if perhaps we are an illegitimate child. In other words, we're not truly saved. Again, it's impossible to love like Jesus was teaching us to love here unless we are truly saved, unless we're a genuine Christian. I think the best way to maybe wrap up our time together is just to reflect on the fact that God himself, he himself is the ultimate example of loving your enemies. He gave up his life 
to save the life of his enemies. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. When we were hateful and hostile toward God, totally unattractive, undeserving of his love, God sent his son to die on the cross to pay for our sinful rebellion against him. And it's only when we embrace Jesus as our Lord, as our Savior, that we will be enabled by his grace to love others the way God loves us. And the bottom line is God isn't asking us or expecting us to do anything he hasn't already done for us and continues to do for us on a daily basis. One of my favorite quotes from A.W. Pink's Attributes of God, a great resource. If you've never read it, I'd encourage you to. Just a small little book highlighting the various characteristics of God. And he quotes a Puritan, William Gurnall, in one of his chapters on the goodness of God. And this is what he says. He says, when I consider how the goodness of God is abused by the greatest part of mankind, I cannot but be of his mind that said, quote, the greatest miracle in the world is God's patience and bounty to an ungrateful world. If a prince has an enemy got into one of his towns, he does not send them in provision, but lays close siege to the place and does what he can to starve them. Kind of sounds like the way some of us treat our spouses sometimes, right? We don't provide for them. We kind of lay siege in our hearts. We starve them of whatever that might be that we know they want, whether that's conversation, um, affection, sexual intimacy. We, We starve them. But the great God that could wink all his enemies into destruction bears with them and is at daily cost to maintain them. Well, may he command us to bless them that curse us, who himself does good to the evil and unthankful. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this radical challenge about how we are to love. And we all confess this is not normal. It's not natural. It doesn't come easy. This is really the opposite of the way that we are wired in our sinful humanity. But we're thankful that Christ never commands us to do something that he also doesn't enable us to do and we know that apart from him we can't do this and we need Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We need to get saved. We need to be a follower of Jesus. We need to have the spirit that he promised to to give us, give those that 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 repent and believe in him to to lead us all lead us into all truth and to uh, produce in us the fruit of the spirit, the first of which is love. And so, Lord, we thank you for the example of Christ. Uh, He didn't just tell us what to do. He showed us what it looks like. 
in his own death by the hand of his enemies. And Lord, we were those enemies that put him on the cross. And so who are we to think that we could withhold love from those who treat us harshly or unjustly or unfairly? And Lord, especially when this seeps into our marriages and we find ourselves at odds with the one that we committed our lives to and we're tempted to break our promise to break our vows and move on in hopes that we'll find somebody else that might fulfill what we're lacking or missing or wishing we had in our present marriage, but we know ultimately we'll find disillusionment once again. And so, Lord, would you be merciful and gracious to all of our marriages? Lord, that you wouldn't let our marriages ever get to this point where we have to treat each other like our worst enemies. But Lord, if it does get to that point, and if, and if it perhaps is at that point for someone here, that you would give, give us hope, Lord, that your word anticipated that there were gonna be situations and seasons where we would have to apply hard texts like this. And we're thankful, Lord, that you give us the strength to do that. You can help us do that. And I pray, Lord, that we would be sensitive to those around us who might be struggling, that we would be used by you to come alongside them and remind them of the truths of Scripture to give them help, to give them hope. And Lord, that the marriages in this church would thrive because we know as the marriages go, the church goes. And so as today is a day set aside by the world to celebrate love and, and intimacy and, and um, um, I just ask that you would um, make the most of this opportunity to reaffirm our love for those in our lives that you've given us, you've blessed us with. And Lord, that you would grant reconciliation um, to any couples who are at odds with one another. And uh, Lord, that we as Christians would be uh, really set the example because uh, we know ultimately our marriages were designed to reflect Christ and his church. And that we're not gonna be married forever. Um, it's until we die and go to heaven because when we get to heaven, we won't need to be married because we'll be married to Christ, our one true love, our first love. And so while we have the opportunity now in this lifetime to experience um, marriage on a human level, uh, help us to remember it's really just prepping us for our heavenly marriage. And so help us to do a good job with it and bring you honor and glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I came across a, 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 another resource that uh, when I saw it, I thought, oh, I wanna get this for our marriage and I would commend it to you. Um, I blanked on the title here. I had it in my head, but anyway, it's a book uh, about the relationship between C.H. Spurgeon and his wife, Susie. 
And I think it's called uh, Together Until Heaven, something like that, or Yours yours Until Heaven. And uh, it's just, uh, so that was my Valentine's gift to my wife, and I thought, let's read this together and uh, see what we can learn from this godly couple. But I just love that, that, that mindset that, you know, and, and Kyle's teaching, by the way, Kyle's, I got a few minutes, come on, you thought I was going to let you out early? No. Um, some more thoughts are coming to my mind. Kyle is teaching the college kids right now a, a series on dating, right? Every college pastor has to do the dating series at some point. Well, Kyle was very frank with the, the students and said, hey guys, you know, you may have come here and, and obviously you did come here because there's more of you here than normal is what he's say, seeing, all these kids coming out of the woodwork for this dating series. He goes, you know, it's interesting that we're so excited about learning something the Bible really doesn't talk about. The Bible doesn't really talk about dating. But it talks about marriage. So let's talk about marriage. And know that dating, courting, whatever you want to call it, is just leading us to marriage. And uh, it was so encouraging for our, uh, a, a conversation I had with our youngest son who had been to one of those sessions. And he was telling me how Kyle was reminding the, the, the students that, hey guys, marriage is temporary. It really is. And and it really lasts until we get to heaven. And, you, you know, we all know that there's, there's no marriage in heaven, right? The, Jesus said that. There's no giving away of marriage in heaven. And we've all kind of accepted that. Yeah, okay, so, you know, we think about, well, will we know our spouse? Will we recognize them? And we ask all these questions, and why won't we be married? Well, it's really simple. God designed marriage here on earth to simply represent, to replicate, to model the ultimate marriage, and that his we're going to be married to Christ. We are his bride, and he's the groom. And so when we get to heaven, it's like, see ya, right? Not that we don't care about one another and all that kind of stuff, right? But the point is, it's like it comes to full uh, fruition. It's the whole point of earthly marriage was to get us ready for our heavenly marriage. That's why there's no marriage in heaven, because we'll be married to Christ. And, and I thank Kyle for just... You know, we always think back about marriage back to Genesis and the reason why God created marriage was to be an example of Christ in the church. But Kyle admitted, and I admitted, that we had never thought it through to the end, to eternity. And, and really, it all points to our, our marriage to Christ uh, in heaven. So beautiful, beautiful picture. And um, thankful for Kyle. Pray for him as he continues to teach our students through that. So anyway,